Hello, hello, hello. This episode of the Exit 5 podcast is brought to you by Apollo.io. If you share a pipeline goal with your sales team, then you care about the deliverability of your team's outbound emails. No email visibility means no chance to get that meeting. This is the silent nightmare for marketers. We often don't even know that this is happening. The most common cause of it, it's actually an easy one to fix. You're not using the right tool. That's why hundreds of marketers at companies like Mutiny are switching to Apollo.io. Apollo has every tool you need to power your entire outbound and inbound motions. Yep, that's right. I said inbound emails too. You can ask their team about what that is. Marketers using Apollo have seen outbound email deliverability jump from 62% to 98% after making the switch. 98%, that means more replies, more meetings, and of course, more pipeline. Want to see what type of results you can get with Apollo? Head over to apollo.io slash e5, apollo.io slash e5. If you go there right now, their team will set you up with a free account for you. And as a thank you for your time, check this out. You're going to get a free annual membership to Exit 5. That's valued at $275 just for checking them out. And the tool is free. If you're not already a member, this is a great opportunity. And if you are and you want to learn more, go to apollo.io slash e5. One, two, three, four. Exit five. All right, Paul's here. I'm excited to do this. I've wanted to have Paul on the show for a while. I don't know why I didn't reach out earlier. Maybe I did, and there's an email and spam somewhere. Who knows? But <laughs> Paul, it's good to have you here. For people that aren't familiar with you and your background, how do you talk about who you are and what you do? Yeah, so I mean, my my current life is CEO and founder of Marketing AI Institute, which I started in 2016. At the time I was running PR 2020, you and I crossed paths at different times in our careers when you were at HubSpot and Drift when I was running PR 2020, which was HubSpot's first partner back in 07. But I sold that business in 2021. And today we're really focused on trying to accelerate AI literacy in all aspects, not just business, but society, governments everywhere. Um, and so that's the vast majority of my time goes to AI education. Can you talk about, I want to, we'll get into the AI stuff, but just your past life and yeah. building and running PR 2020. Talk about that business. Yeah. So that started, I was 27. You know, I started that. I'd been five years at an agency. I, I graduated out of journalism school in 2000, started PR 2020, 2005. And, you know, as you can appreciate, like the world was changing a lot, like the technology wise was starting to really transform around 2005. I think that's the year YouTube was created. Google's like six, seven years old at the time. Social media is emerging. Twitter's about to come on the scene two years prior to the iPhone emergence. So we're just like, we're in that really origin phase of mobile and social and content marketing and podcasting starting to become a thing, blogging. And so it was a really fascinating time to be building a business. And, and it was right around the time HubSpot was created. I think they started in summer 06. We became their first partner in fall 07. And we just sort of like rode that wave. And that's what PR 2020 became, was largely like a HubSpot partner. It was a fascinating time to build a business and build a service company. It was hard. Like service businesses are really hard. Being an entrepreneur is hard, as you know, like trying to build something and create a following and a community and a, I mean, eventually a membership model, which is what we did with the Marketing Institute. 
but yeah, I mean, it was, it was great. I was just by 2021, I was so ready to focus solely on AI that I, I just had to get out of the service business. It's cool because your story, like the story of growing PR 2020, just you seem to have this in your DNA. And I don't, I don't know you personally, but you were early on the inbound content movement as a marketing channel. You build an agency. Then later you, you're early on AI. Can you just talk about what type of advantage? I, I try to push people on this podcast, especially marketers. I've noticed that a common thread between the top performers that I've been lucky to like work around as peers or you know my bosses or whoever they all have this thing that you have which is they're early on something and i want to push more people and we had talked a lot about ai like last year and like hey this is an opportunity to go build plant your flag in this how do you where does that come from and how do you push people to do that to go take a channel or something and go be early on something just you can create such a huge advantage in a world where there's so much noise yeah you can it takes fortitude though like it takes resiliency because it looks like you're wrong for a long time. So, you know, when I bet on AI, I started researching it in 2011. I wrote about it in my second book in 2014, just like 700 out of 50,000 words was about AI, but it was just like a premise of what I thought was going to happen. Did, a, you know, some public speaking in 2015, started the Institute in 2016, lost money every month for seven years building it. Like, <laughs> it from the outside, it was just like, yeah, that's cool. He's working on that AI stuff. Don't really get it. Don't understand it. But as an entrepreneur, you believe so deeply in the vision, but it's the will to see that vision through until it makes sense to everyone else that really creates an entrepreneur. And that was like that concept actually came from a book I read early in my career called Will and Vision. And they talked about what does it take to basically be a category leader? What does it take to build a great company? And the premise was like a lot of people have a vision for something. They connect dots. They see a market opportunity. But to be willing to be the one to risk everything financially, career-wise, to like stick to that idea long enough until ChatGPT shows up and like everyone else was like, oh, yeah, AI, that's the hard part. And, you know, for the first time I did it with HubSpot, we definitely saw that early, um, became the origin of that whole partner program that they built. And that one happened a little faster. Like I think by 2009, two years in, everyone was like, oh yeah, HubSpot's going to be huge. But it's still like, I mean, we weren't, it wasn't like we just did that and all of a sudden the business was this runaway success. You're still grinding to make payroll each month and figure out where to borrow the next $100,000 from. So I think it's really just entrepreneurship is about having a vision, but it's also about the resiliency to see that vision through. When did you get into this idea of building a membership model. Selfishly, I kind of want to geek out on this a little bit. Yeah. We're, we're, we'll have plenty of time to talk about AI and For trends sure. and everything, but I'm, I'm really interested in your, you have two almost polar opposite businesses. You have a agency service type of business. Now you're running a, a content membership business. Take me into the, I'm not super familiar with the offerings and yeah. how you generate revenue and is there a team? So I'd love to uh, learn some of that from you. Yeah, it's, so I will, I'll say upfront, like having run a service company for 16 years, I loved it this is a, a 10 times better model. <laughs> like it's, um, it's a far more scalable model to sell knowledge products and, you know, to sell education. So the way I kind of got into it is, so when I wrote my first book in 2011, The Marketing Agency Blueprint, that book sold, I, I think it's probably sold close to 18 to 20,000 copies, which in the business world is a pretty good success. I don't know how much people know about publishing, but the average business book sells like 500 copies. So to sell 15 to 20,000, it's not like New York Times bestseller, but that's a pretty decent book. 
all told as an author, I don't know what my my take, my royalties on that was, but let's say somewhere between 10 and 15% of all sales. Maybe in the lifetime, that book generated like thirty to fifty thousand dollars in royalties. I, <laughs> I, I don't know. Like nothing. I wrote a, yeah, I wrote a book a couple of years ago, and every every month I'm I get like a a hundred and eleven dollar yes. you know d- check from like Authors Republic dep- deposited <laughs> to my PayPal, and I'm like, man, this is <laughs> it's not glamour. Like it, again, it it it's great to be able to say you wrote a book, but you have to activate that book to make it worthwhile. Yeah, well, I think for for like for people like you and me doing it in the context of like it's a platform to yes. to do other things. Obviously, if you're going to be a James Clear, a Ryan Holiday, you can make you can make lots of money, you know, writing a book. But right. in this case, it's it's it was not the the goal. <laughs> Correct. So we took that book though. This is 2011, so it came out December 2011. 2012, I created the uh, an AI academy or, or an academy for agencies, and we created a blueprint series, five courses based on the book that we sold. I think it was for $9.99 each for the five part series. That series, I want to say, generated somewhere in the range of a quarter million dollars. It was the book in course form. Like if you read the book, <laughs> you basically had all the same knowledge. Yeah. So that was the first time in 2012 I saw like the information product opportunity and how people choose to learn in different ways. And some people want that interactive component. They want like the more visual. So we sold it through like Eventbrite and like just patched the thing together back in the day. I think we maybe used Thinkific as the learning management system back then. So then in 2014, I invented this kind of like point pricing model to sort of reinvent how pricing was done within service companies. So we created a series for that that did probably a quarter million or more. Then we took our, um, we taught other agencies how to do client services. That series became, you know, quarter million plus. So we were doing something once that was like 30 to 50 hours of my life to create that could make money overnight while you were sleeping. And so when you're running a service company where every dollar basically is another element of human resource needed to deliver that dollar, to create something that just perpetuates and generates revenue and value for the customer, that's a really interesting thing. So I always wanted to find a way to do that. Like I never was that interested in building software and kind of diversifying our revenue through software, but I saw information products as like a real key thing. Yeah, everyone says it to me now. They're like, you need to be built. Like if you were really smart, you'd be building a SaaS product to then sell all these B2B markets. I'm like, look, I agree that that could be a path. I have no interest. I don't have any interest in do that. I'm not a great product person. I don't want to get in with developers and engineers. Like I'm, I'm very intentional about like just doing the knowledge and education side of yeah. this. I think that's an interesting call out. When I think it's really, it's a great business, but as you know, the key is you have to have an audience first. Like if you show up and start selling memberships or selling courses and you're not, you don't have an online audience or you don't have a subscriber base of newsletter subscribers, it's really hard to have success. Yeah, I, don't, I didn't mean to hit, I, I've hit this raise my hand button in oh, Zencaster okay. for the first time. I don't know why I've ever done that. <laughs> it's okay. Um, so it's interesting to think about what's possible. So you've always been, you have a lot of common threads, like you built an inbound agency, you've always been creating content. What was the catalyst to get you to say, you started researching AI in 2011. When did you realize that there was an opportunity to like, fill a gap here and, and create content and educate people? And what was the first piece of that for, for your business? So we looked at, back. so if you go back to 2000, 
2014, the second book comes out. 2015, I don't know that I ever did a talk about the core of that book. So the second book was the marketing performance blueprint. It was talent, tech, and strategy, how to build an optimal like marketing program, basically. The AI piece was a, a segment of the tech section of the book. That is the only thing anyone ever asked me to come and speak about. The US government called, I keynoted the MarkTech conference the next year, I did South by Southwest. So I realized by 2015 that the forward thinking organizations and events were interested in the AI topic. And then 2016, Mike Caput and I, my chief content officer, who was working for me at PR 2020 at the time, we got talking over a happy hour. And it's like, well, this AI stuff's kind of interesting. Like, what should we do with it? And so we looked and said, well, we can tell the story of it. Like, that's what we're uniquely capable of doing. We're not the engineers, the data scientists, but we we're journalists by trade. Like, we, we can tell a story. So we created Marketing Institute as a blog that was part of our agency. It was just a separate domain under the agency. And we, the two of us just basically started researching and writing about AI. And my belief was if we build an audience, like if we get people subscribing and we get enough of them, at the time, my belief was 10,000 was like the minimum I wanted before I committed to anything else, then we would maybe consider building a conference. So my friend Joe Polizzi had built Content Marketing Institute, Content Marketing World. We'd seen it done. I kind of knew what the blueprint was. And so that was the vision of like, well, we could build something like that if we get enough people interested in it. And when you said you you started writing, was the initial distribution, what was the initial distribution of that to get those first 10,000 subscribers? It was just a blog and then a, a weekly newsletter that just kind of recapped whatever we were writing about. And the blog was, there was a few components to it. One, we wanted to look at use cases and tools if they were out there. Two, I wanted to interview the entrepreneurs who were actually building the stuff because I was still trying to figure out what is the story? Like, is AI real right now? Can we be integrating it into our businesses? What does that look like? Should I be thinking about it for our clients and bringing services to them around AI? And the only way to do that was to go talk to the people building it and try and figure out where are we? And I think 2016, in retrospect, we were very, very early. Like adoption, honestly, in enterprises, as you know, it's still extremely early. So back in 2016, it was almost non-existent. And then fast forward to today, what's the full view of the of the business? You have content, you do an event. What what's the what's the mix? Yeah. So media event and education are kind of the three pillars of the business model. So the media side is published content, build an audience. We have about 65,000, I would say, subscribers, like opt-in contacts, however you want to define them. That grows at about three to 4,000 a month now. The top of the funnel is largely the blog, the podcast has you know really become a driver and I can get into kind of how that happened. It was sort of by accident that we built a massive growing podcast. And then we have an intro to AI class that I teach every three weeks. I started doing this in November of 2021, that it's free on Zoom. We've had almost 17,000 people register for that class. We've done it 33 times since November 2021. And that was, again, this resiliency thing. What I told the team is like, we have to think about this like, uh, like you're building a rock band. Like We're going to show up and there's going to be 10 people in the room. And I'm going to keep showing up every three weeks and I'm going to do this class until there's 300 and then there's 3000 <laughs> like, yeah. and, and over time it hit, but chat GBT just literally changed everything. We went from yeah. 300 on average to 900 on average, um, in the months following chat. Well, I mean, yes, to like to you, your timing matters, right? Talk to any yeah. entrepreneur and it always seems like there's like 
somebody toiling away for seven years and then boom, that your moment happens and you're ready. Like you had to be ready to capture it, right? Yeah. You, you had already been building. And so when the chat GPT wave came out, you know, last two years or whatever it's been, you were ready to capture it. But there's also something there. I love that from a speaking and content creation and learning standpoint. If I bet that you would, you have this talk that you give, you've probably edited and updated that 50 times because you give it to 10 people you kind of feel the response. You okay, that slide needs to go here. We got to tweak that thing. Like you just must you you get that flywheel going. And so just taking that mentality of like I don't care if 10 people are here or 10,000 like while we grow this audience, I'm also trying to nail this pitch. Was that yeah. not a part of the learning process here? 100%. Yeah, and I thought so many of the things we do, we do because it just feels like the right direction. So, you know, the podcast again is a great example of this. The way what had happened was in October 2022, our, I felt our content strategy was getting kind of stale. We were doing a lot of republishing. HubSpot had come out with their study about, you know, refreshing old content and how it can drive a lot of traffic. And so we were playing, we were running that playbook. And so a lot of what we were doing on the blog was updating old stuff. And I just, I wasn't feeling it. And so I went to Mike, our chief content officer, and I said, listen, let's do the podcast because we had started it two years earlier and I just wasn't fulfilling it. I was doing like five episodes a year. So let's go to a weekly format. And instead of you and I sharing links with each other on Zoom all week, let's curate those. And each week we'll pick three main topics. You interview me about those three main topics. And then we'll have five to 10 rapid fire items of interesting things. I didn't even honestly know what the KPIs of a podcast were. I was literally just trying to drive a different content strategy for our company and I thought, we'll take each episode, each of the three main topics becomes its own blog post. And then a fourth blog post that summarizes the whole thing will embed the YouTube video, we'll start getting content on YouTube, and it'll force us to synthesize what's happening in AI every week. And I'll put some stuff on LinkedIn as a relation to it. That was it. It was purely the podcast became the driver of the blog. And then ChatGPT hit like 45 days later. And all of a sudden, the podcast became the platform. Like everything started running off of that. And that was, again, it was like this happy accident almost. But I mean, it's truly a pure B2B marketing story. Like everything yeah, we're doing is just a B2B play. <laughs> hey, it's Dave. This episode of the Exit 5 podcast is brought to you by Apollo.io. If you share a pipeline goal with your sales team, then you care about the deliverability rate of your team's outbound emails. No email visibility means no meetings. This becomes the silent nightmare for us marketers. You often don't even know that this is happening. And the most common cause of it, it's actually an easy one to fix. You're not using the right tool. That's why hundreds of marketers at companies like Mutiny are switching to Apollo.io. Apollo has every tool you need to power your entire outbound and inbound motions. Yep, that's right. I said inbound emails too. You can ask their team about it. Marketers using Apollo have seen outbound email deliverability jump from 62% to 98% after making the switch. 98%, that means more replies, more meetings, and of course, more booked pipeline. Want to see what type of results you can get? Head over to apollo.io slash e5 apollo.io slash e5 right now and book a meeting with their team to get set up and as a thank you for your time they will give you a free annual exit five membership for booking a meeting that's valued at 275 dollars go check them out apollo.io slash e5 
Well, it's awesome. I mean, clearly, you know what you're doing from it. From you have experience with content and inbound to even have those ideas in the first place. But it also speaks to like if you went in, and I think people make this mistake with podcasting. And if you went in, you're like, here's the KPI. We want to hit 10,000 downloads by this month. Like you would have approached it differently, and it wouldn't have happened this way. You kind of had the right ingredients, which is the story a clear methodology that you wanted to teach and you were looking for a new platform to distribute that story. Yeah. And it's, I mean, honestly, like it's, I know it's had a big impact on our community. Like we hear from people all the time about the podcast and how it's like the thing they have to listen to every week, but it's done as much for me and Mike, I think, because it really does force me to keep up with everything I'm already reading and, and listening to and watching, but then to once a week, stop and think about it in a deeper way and oftentimes some of the most important ideas I have for the future come serendipitously as Mike and I are having that conversation live each week. And it's like, oh my gosh, you know what, Mike, I hadn't thought of this yet, but I think what this means is this. Yeah. And that may actually lead to like the next course I build or the next workshop we do, all because we're taking the time to actually have a conversation about it. That's awesome. And you you just get that you have the feedback loop from so many channels. People are messaging you, they're gonna reach out, you do a podcast about a topic and you're like whoa, that was our most listened to podcast ever. There's clearly an appetite for that. That's what our next course should be about, or that's what the next session should be about. So do you do this weekly podcast? Do you, are you two like sharing notes throughout the week? Do you have an agenda? Are you kind of creating a, a, a doc of like, hey, here are the topics that we're going to cover this week? Yeah, so we record it every Monday morning. And as soon as it's done, I start the sandbox for the next week. So like in Zoom, we'll have a podcast channel and it just says like episode 80. And then as I'm going throughout the week, reading things, looking on Twitter, whatever, I just grab links and drop them in there. And then on Sunday nights, Mike goes in, he curates those links, he selects what he thinks are the three main topics, and then the rapid fires, and then there's stuff that doesn't make the cut that just goes in the newsletter. He sends it to me, I look at the brief, say, yeah, that looks good, or no, let's move this to a main topic, whatever. Maybe takes me like three to five minutes. And then he goes in and he builds the brief and he he basically uses different AI tools. He'll take the article, summarize it, grab, you know, Q&A, like things to ask, that kind of stuff. And so he'll build a brief out. And then usually about 30 minutes before we record, I'll go in and look at the brief and I'll add any notes that I have. So he generally scripts his part of it. My part is completely unscripted. What is the marketing AI guy? Where is he? Re where are you researching? That's what I want to know. That's what that's what the listeners want to know. Where, what are you? What sources do you look at to build your, what do you find worth paying attention to? So I would say mine is a collection of podcasts I listen to, but I would say probably 90 to 95% of what I read and synthesize throughout the week comes from a highly curated list of alerts on Twitter. So I have a AI list that's public. You could go look at it. It's probably got about 480 or so AI people. It's entrepreneurs, researchers, VCs, journalists, like anybody around AI that I've followed throughout the years. But then I actually get alerts from a select group of those people. And I want to say there's there's no easy way to figure this out on Twitter. I can't go tell you the list of people I get alerts from, which is a crazy thing that that's not a feature in there. But I want to say there's probably 70 to 80 people and brands that I get notifications from the second they tweet. And so when you do that, and, and, and that, like for, a lot, for me, a lot of it is the top AI researchers like, you know, Sam Altman, Demis Asabas, Mustafa Solomon, like... Dario Amade, like the, the, the leaders of the big AI research labs, Jan LeCun, if you follow those people and then who they retweet, you can pretty quickly build a knowledge base of like everyone who kind of matters in AI. 
And then you have to connect the dots between everything they're doing and saying. And that's kind of how I stay up on it. You've used this phrase, what matters in AI? Let's talk about what matters in AI for marketers today, specifically the marketers that listen to this podcast, which are a majority of them are B2B marketers. Why does AI matter? Because now it's accessible to everybody. So I think like one of the things that gets lost in AI conversations is that AI itself isn't new. Like it's been around since the 1950s, this idea that we could give intelligence to to machines or to software. But it went through like a lot of growing pains over the 70 plus years. But what happened is in 2011, there was a breakthrough in computer vision that gave machines the ability to like recognize objects. Um, Fei-Fei Li, who's at Stanford, her team kind of, um, you know, created this ImageNet competition. And then a couple of people who eventually went to work for Google, Jeff Hinton and uh, Ilya Sutskova, who's actually at OpenAI now, him and another guy uh, created a tool that basically achieved like superhuman object recognition. That was a breakthrough in deep learning in 2011. In 2017, the Google Brain team invented what's called the transformer. Uh, GPT stands for Generative Pre-trained Transformer. It gave us the ability to build language models. And so the breakthrough that really led to a lot of what we see today is the ability for machines, for AI, to understand and generate language. And so when ChatGPT emerged in November 2022, all of a sudden, anyone had access to it. So prior to that moment, it was hard for a marketer to look at AI and say, yeah, I totally get it. I can go use an image generation tool or a video generation tool or a language generation tool. But once we had generative AI that a user with no coding or AI ability could show up and get value out of it, instant value, that was what created this kind of tipping point. And so now what we see is like, if you think about generative AI as a, a class, there's image, video, audio, code, all of these things are accessible right now. And so what we're seeing is enterprises that know these tools are there and they can go get it for $20 a month or $30 a month from you know OpenAI or Microsoft or Google, but very few companies actually know what to do with this or how to pick an AI writing platform or an image generation platform, things like that. So it's become real to where CEOs are demanding action, boards are demanding actions of their CEOs, VCs won't give startups tech companies any more money until they have an AI roadmap. Like it just became this thing that everyone needs to solve for, but no one seems to actually know what to do. Mm. People love like the practical, tactical examples. You're a marketer, you know, you're a CEO now, but you start a marketing agency, you built a marketing AI institute. What are some of the best or your favorite like real examples of how AI can be used in a marketing capacity? Yeah, we always we teach people like a use case model, which is think about the things you do. So if you're if you're an email marketer, if you do analytics, social media, whatever it is, think about the things you do every day, the tactical things and look for ways to AI to enhance it. So an example for us would be our podcast. As I mentioned, if we did every tactical thing each week manually with no AI, it would probably take 30 to 50 hours of work. We do it all in probably eight to 10 hours. And there's things we just wouldn't have previously done. So we use AI for, like I said, when Mike's building his script, he's using it. We do it for the transcription of the audio. We do it for summarization of that transcription. We then write four blog posts based on those summaries. We use AI to write the social media posts. We use AI to cut up the, the shorts for YouTube and TikTok. Like it's infused into every aspect of the podcast, probably 10 to 15 tasks of the weekly 
regimen for the podcast is done by AI or with heavy AI assistance. Descript is probably the primary tool we use within that, but there's a whole stack of tools that are integrated into it. So that's an example for us, which is something we do all the time that we now use AI and, and infuse it into the workflow. And what, what va- like, man, there, I'm just listening to you now and I'm like, there's so much that I'm not doing with AI, even in our business. Like, what should we be doing? Is it like just <laughs> the creating, you know, because I get, I get the value, I get it, right? We could feed the podcast recordings and get a transcript, but like, what, what do I then do with that? How do I turn that into something useful versus just like another marketing, you know, thing that we did? Yeah. So for me, again, it's it's all about like amplification and activation of a single asset. So, you know, if you think about any business, so I'm, I'm the CEO, obviously my time is generally limited in my ability to contribute to like writing blog posts. Like I don't have three to five hours to down write blog posts every week, but for one week, one hour each week, we have me dedicated to talk about what is happening in AI, all those points of view, all those perspectives that otherwise I probably wouldn't even tell my own team it comes out in that one hour. So the question becomes, how do we maximize the value of that one hour and amplify it across as many channels as we can? Because it creates value for the audience, but it also builds the presence and profile of the brand. And so that's how we think about AI. It's like, okay, how do we take that one hour of transcript and turn it into as many pieces of content? Because we realize that it's not like when you and I were coming up, like it's not seven years ago where everything just goes on the blog and we just want to drive everyone to the blog. Consumer behavior is changing, the way people consume information is changing, and we have to evolve with that. We have to be on YouTube. We had to build a better presence there. We need to be on TikTok, even though I don't personally care to use the platform, we need to be there. So we looked and said, okay, well, how do we get all this content there? And so that's how we look at AI as a way to really help us do this. We have a team of seven people the, and that includes me and our chief operating officer who don't really get involved much outside of me doing the podcast in the content side. And really the content team is is basically one and a half people at this point. So how do we though scale? And if you look from the outside, I think it could appear as though we have a 10 plus person content team. And, and that's not it at all. Like I don't, we probably spend less than 50 hours a month creating content, but it looks like way more than that. I used to charge clients $10,000 a month to create less content that we're creating. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. You should get back in that business. Just don't tell them that you know all the you know all the secrets now. We were you charging, <laughs> I mean, we would do four blog post a month packages for clients. And I want to say it was like 1,000 to 1,500 per post or something like that. It's amazing. Just for four blog posts. How do you get good? Like, I think there's, I think there's a difference between, you know, me going to chat GPT and being like, I'm interviewing this guy, Paul, who runs the Marketing AI Institute. You know, help me come up with five questions I should ask him. I think that's become very standard. I mean, we've reached, we haven't reached peak AI adoption, but like my my father, who is 65, he emails me literally last week. He's like, Dave, check this out. I'm interviewing so I'm interviewing a new guy for a new role and I asked ChatGPT ChatGPT to write the interview questions. I'm like, man, we've reached, we've reached peak like, <laughs> you know, tech. I don't even know what it's called. Yeah. Um, and I do think that a lot of people, I do think I've even find myself doing that. Like I'm not getting the most out of AI. Other, What are the steps there? Everyone says, oh, you just got to learn how to become a prompt engineer. I don't, I don't know what that means though. Yeah, so the weird thing about these models is they're not like normal software. 
you know, in the software world, we all came up and it did what you told it to do. And it didn't really make mistakes unless there was a bug in the software. It just, you told it these five things and it executed them. These things don't work that way. Like they'll make stuff up, they'll hallucinate, they'll like kind of go off the rails a little bit. So they're not like traditional software. And so as weird as it is, the simplest way to think about using these tools is to treat it like a really smart intern, like talk to it like a really smart intern. And so there's like little tricks, like if you tell it who it is, it generally does better. Like if you say, I'll give you an example. I use this as like an entrepreneur. I don't always want to have to call my attorney or my accountant when I, I have a question. So let's say I'm building like um, an equity program for our employees. I'll go in and say, you are an attorney that specializes in assisting you know, entrepreneurs who run LLCs with building employee incentive programs. I want you to consider these five options and, and build pros and cons for them. And it'll actually like somehow or another, even the people building this don't know exactly how it works. By telling it who it is and what exactly you want it to do, it kind of confines its outputs. It like zeroes in its expertise on that topic. So I've done this like a friend who's a dentist. I like you own a dental practice. Your profits are down because your costs are skyrocketing and insurance controls your pricing. How can you maximize profit using AI? And it'll it'll do it. It'll build these things. And so it's really just developing this way to talk to it as though you were giving an assignment to a human mm. and you're very clear in what you want it to do. So that's just kind of like one trick to do it. Other than that, it is really following best practices and like guidance, like Ethan Mollick. I follow him. He's a Wharton um, business school professor. He shares a ton of like really practical takeaways on how to do this stuff. And so I just, I kind of follow those people. So I'm just thinking of like two projects that I'm currently working on that I normally would just think and brainstorm and research and write, which is number one is I want to add a new tier to our exit five community. Like there's a, a strong pull towards people who want to be future CMOs. And we're thinking about like carving off something for that and doing that. Could I use a tool like ChatGPT and write some smart prompts to like help me figure out the packaging and, and what should be in that? For sure. Yeah. And what I would do there is I would give it like you're an entrepreneur, you run a, a fast growing media company. My audience is this again, it's like writing a a strategy brief as a marketing leader, basically. This is what I want you to do. I want you to like compare the pros and cons, take it step by step. It often works better if you tell it to like take its time and think through step by step. The other thing you can do is tell me what questions do you need to ask to get to the, the final product? Like what questions should I be asking of you? And so often it helps to think of it as not a single prompt and a single output, but an ongoing conversation where there's questions back and forth. The other thing I will do with a, with a use case like that is I will have ChatGPT open, the paid edition, because you want GPT-4. I was just going to ask you that. So is there going to be a difference in the quality of, like, I need to go and I need to use the paid version to get the better answers? Yes, 100%. Okay. Anything that deals with more advanced reasoning and like chain of thought thinking and like you, like strategy, I would always use GPT-4. It's by far still the best model we have in humanity right now. That may change within a month or two, but at the moment, that is the most powerful. And considering how powerful that is, kind of a joke, $20 a month. It's the greatest <laughs> right. value in software history. <laughs> and can I get images? Like, can, can, I, yeah. can I get better Dolly images? Dolly 3's built into it. Cool. Yeah. So what I would do, though, is I would have Anthropic Claude 2. I would have GPT-4 through ChatGPT. You can play around with Google Bard. It'll get better in the coming months inflection pie like i would i would test it on a couple of them or a few of them give it the same prompt 
and evaluate the output. Generally speaking, my experience is GPT-4 is almost always the best output. Claude from Anthropic is pretty good and it's getting better. Google Bard will get better once they fix the underlying language model. Oh man, this is great. This is something I can't wait till I can't wait till my exit five team listens to this. When you build courses, I found it's really good at building like abstracts for courses and like online courses and even for our conferences. We have our marketing AI conference. We also have three virtual summits. I use it to assist me in building the agendas, to come up with questions to ask or what would be good outputs for this topic, things like that. Cool. Man, this is so good. Three months from now, I'm having you back on. We need more time. Um, (laughs) So what's something that you see a myth, an objection, a false belief that you see, you know, people writing on LinkedIn or on Twitter, specifically in the B2B marketing space that you want to correct or wish you could shape that maybe something that they believe is true is not, you know, AI is scary. AI is going to take my job or AI can't do this or the quality is crappy. Some, some myth that you see that you want to myth bust. Yeah. I mean, I, I do think it's scary, honestly. Like I, I think it's going to be very disruptive knowledge work. I think it's going to be a, there's a very good possibility. It's going to be a painful few years as the newer models come out and it, it, it affects I mean, there's 100 million U.S. workers that are knowledge workers, roughly. That's doctors, lawyers, accountants, attorneys, marketers, consultants, whatever. It's all of them. And I think it's going to be disruptive, not replace roles. Like, it's not going to just say, okay, we just don't need this marketer anymore. It can't do 100% of their work. But the challenge becomes, do we need as many of them? So if you're an accounting firm and you only have so many you know, tax returns you can do each year and you can do them 30% more efficiently, do you just need fewer people doing those those results basically so that's i think the challenge we're going to face and that's unknown where that goes but i think we need to be preparing for disruption the thing that usually i think about as a myth is that it's overhyped <laughs> and and my feeling there is it's completely underhyped still <laughs> like <laughs> it because if you think about the adoption in these enterprises it's so early like I still have yet to talk to an enterprise, and I've talked to some of the biggest companies in the world that have a change management plan in place for if this stuff works the way it's supposed to work. If you go get ChatGPT Teams for your company or ChatGPT Enterprise, you get Microsoft 365 Copilot, and it actually does what it's supposed to be able to do. We're talking about a complete restructuring of how organizations work, their staffing, their tech stacks, everything. Nobody is ready for that. And all the stock prices, by the way, there's almost zero enterprise adoption when you look at Google and NVIDIA and Amazon and Microsoft, and people think they're like overvalued in some cases. I just like to say, but we haven't even hit the adoption curve yet for what they're doing. Mm. I don't want to talk about the scary stuff with you because that's not what this podcast (laughs) is about and there's not enough time for that. (laughs) It's a whole nother topic. As a marketer, like just, man, I'm even fired up just from the way you're telling me to rethink prompts. And obviously there's, I haven't gone through any of your courses and training and there's a huge opportunity for me to do that. I just haven't been in the right, I've, if I was like going super hard on like marketer Dave use case, I would be, I need to, I'm learning, man, there's a lot of inefficiencies with my business that I should be thinking about this stuff for. But is this a trend? Like you've seen inbound, you've seen mobile, mobile, social, local, whatever all that stuff was. This seems to be the thing that if you're if you're in marketing, you need to, I don't want to say like bet your career on, but this seems to be the thing you got to bring along with you that's going to turn you into a superpower. Am I wrong about that? No, I, I think like I wrote a few years back that 
you know, we were pretty early, obviously, with HubSpot and that I thought this was 10 to 100 times the opportunity that inbound was back then. I haven't changed on that. So I'll tell you, you know, the quick... Whoa, 10? This is 10, 10 to 100 to one, times. Easily. Yeah. I mean, it's not even... I'm probably As far as impact on marketing. Everything. Yeah. Marketing, business, the economy, all of it. Um, because it's going to be the underlying thing that's infused into everything. So if you think about like... I'll often say that I think at least 80% of what knowledge workers do will be AI-assisted to some degree in the next one to two years. Now, the reason I'm fairly confident in that assumption is because if you look at HubSpot and Salesforce and Microsoft and Google and Adobe and Oracle, like every major tech company that we use to do our jobs thinks AI is everything moving forward. They're betting everything on it. So every piece of software you use they're infusing AI into it. You're not going to be able to do your job without AI. It's kind of like your personal life. Like when you use Netflix or Spotify or Amazon or uh, a Tesla or Google Maps or like any of these things you use in your life, none of them are possible without AI. So you're using AI every time you use these tools, every time you go into your social media feed and it curates the news feed for you, it's all AI. That's what's going to happen in marketing, sales, service, operations, all aspects of business. The software is just going to get smarter because these companies have to build the money, have to build it into it. If you're a startup or if you've got a seed round or a series A, you're not getting the next round of funding without an AI roadmap for your products. So that's why I think like it's just it's going to be everywhere. I think I lost you. I think you're muted. Oh, I'm muting. I was just saying a bunch of nasty things about you on mute. No, <laughs> no, this is awesome. I'm taking so many, I have so many notes about this and I was just trying to write the headline and then I'm going to run it against ChatGPT um, after. So wanna, real quick, before I let you go, I want to um, do a quick plug for your, you're doing this AI for B2B Marketer Summit in June, which I think is worth talking about before we wrap up. Yeah, that's a new one. So we have our AI for Writers Summit we did last year. We had 4,200 people register at the inaugural event. It was kind of crazy. It was a virtual event. Um, we do our marketing AI conference in person in Cleveland. We had 700 last year. We're thinking between 1,500 and 2,000 this year. We have an AI for agencies summit that's a virtual summit in the fall. And the AI for B2B marketers is the new one we're doing this year in, in June. Awesome. I think it's a great resource. And everything over there, marketing, uh, marketing AI Institute, you can go to marketingaiinstitute.com. We'll have that in the show notes. I'll have the link to this in the show notes. And you can go to LinkedIn and connect and follow Paul over there. Paul, thank you so much. Uh, you've obviously been deep in this space for a while and it shows. I'm excited to continue to follow you, continue to learn more. And I think take this as an opportunity to, hey, how can I get more efficient in my business? And I hope everybody that's listening will, will find some new creative use cases for AI in their business, or at least just take it a little bit more seriously moving forward. Thanks for joining us, Paul. I appreciate, appreciate it, Dave. This is awesome. All right, man. Thank you. <laughs> Hello, hello, hello. This episode of the Exit 5 podcast is brought to you by Apollo.io. If you share a pipeline goal with your sales team, then you care about the deliverability of your team's outbound emails. No email visibility means no chance to get that meeting. This is the silent nightmare for marketers. We often don't even know that this is happening. The most common cause of it? 
It's actually an easy one to fix. You're not using the right tool. That's why hundreds of marketers at companies like Mutiny are switching to Apollo.io. Apollo has every tool you need to power your entire outbound and inbound motions. Yep, that's right. I said inbound emails too. You can ask their team about what that is. Marketers using Apollo have seen outbound email deliverability jump from 62% to 98% after making the switch. 98%, that means more replies, more meetings, and of course, more pipeline. Want to see what type of results you can get with Apollo? Head over to apollo.io slash e5, apollo.io slash e5. If you go there right now, their team will set you up with a free account for you. And as a thank you for your time, check this out. You're going to get a free annual membership to Exit 5. That's valued at $275 just for checking them out. And the tool is free. If you're not already a member, this is a great opportunity. And if you are and you want to learn more, go to apollo.io slash e5.